Yeah, good morning. There we go. Uh, would you uh, bow your heads with me as we uh, pray? Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word, your word that brings life, uh, that illuminates, that opens our eyes, Lord, to see who we are, to see who you are, to see the world around us. Lord, we thank you that we can come like this and gather together and read and study and learn. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and that we would hear from you, hear you speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the year was uh, 362 AD, and the Roman emperor Julian was not happy at all. This is Julian up here on the screen. He had been working hard to grow and expand pagan worship throughout the kingdom, but his efforts were falling short. Christianity, meanwhile, was continuing to grow and expand, and the emperor was mad. So he wrote a frustrated, long frustrated uh, letter to a high priest named uh, Arsacius, who was a high priest of Galatia, to complain about this situation. And here's what he said, in part, It is their, meaning the Christians he's talking about, he said, it's their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. He's talking about Christianity here. I know it sounds kind of odd, but at that time, um, Christians were often referred to as atheists because they steadfastly refused to worship the Roman God. So they called them atheists. And he says, look, it's their benevolence, their kindness, their generosity, their holiness, their way of life, which cannot be refuted, and is a significant apologetic for their faith. Their faith is growing. Their their, their numbers are growing because these Christians dare to live out their faith in ways that are embarrassing and humiliating to us. It was astonishing. It was frustrating. The pagan religions had nothing in comparison. And we shouldn't really be surprised. The early church was simply trying to live out what Jesus had taught them to do, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. For some reason, the problem seems so much more complex today. How do we best love the homeless and the destitute? How do we care for the poor and the needy, the people living on the very boundaries of society, those ignored or passed over by the rest of the world? Well, this morning, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we're going to look at a text to see how Moses can guide us in this journey in answering these questions. The first step that we can take towards loving our neighbors who are trapped in poverty is to treat them with dignity and respect. The key text here comes in verses 10 through 13. Moses says here, When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. 
You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Now, unless you're Dave Ramsey, you've probably borrowed money from someone in your life. Maybe it was $5 to get like a drink at Starbucks or, or 20 bo- uh, for a meal uh, or something bigger, maybe to help you buy a car or a house. Whatever your views on debt, sooner or later, almost everyone has to take that plunge. And now while you or I may be able to take out a loan for a house and trust that the bank isn't suddenly going to change the terms of the loan on us or, or suddenly uh, demand immediate repayment or send someone to knock on the door and harass us physically, threaten us because we're late on a payment. But the situation has always been far, far different for those living in poverty And the very presence of the law that we have here in Deuteronomy 24 makes that very clear. Now first, Moses says, creditors were forbidden from entering into someone's house to collect his pledge. In other words, if someone uh, loaned someone money, you couldn't then wander into the house and sort of rummage through their stuff to figure out, like, what, what, what do I like best to keep as collateral to support this loan? Implying, of course, this kind of thing actually happened quite frequently, enough to warrant the making of a specific law to forbid it. I mean, you can imagine the humiliation that this would otherwise cause, letting a a stranger rummage through all your stuff, trying to decide what they can take to ensure that you pay back this loan. Now, no, Moses doesn't say, therefore, don't ever loan anyone any money. But he does put some boundaries around the practice, requiring creditors to wait for the debtor to decide what the collateral should be, and then giving them the space to then bring that out themselves rather than having their home ransacked. The principle here is that even a poor person has a right to privacy and should be treated with dignity and respect And moreover, he says, if the chosen item of collateral is the debtor's cloak, then the creditor can't keep that cloak overnight. I know it might seem a little weird to us, like, okay, what's the deal? It's it's like a cloak. I mean, if you've got a house, what does it matter if someone keeps your cloak? Well, at that time, a cloak was more than just sort of something you grabbed off the coat hook on the way out of your house in the morning. It was like the Swiss Army knife of clothing. Right? I mean, a a cloak could shield you from the sun in the blazing heat of the day. It could protect you against thorns and and, and bushes when traveling through the mountains and valleys. It would allow you to carry grain and other produce in it. It could even collect water in a pinch. And finally, as here, it could keep you warm at night as a covering for you to use when you lay down. So a cloak was a very valuable possession, and offering your cloak as a pledge would have been a a matter of last resort when you have literally nothing else left to offer. But God says through Moses that even in this dire situation, creditors should not abuse their power or take advantage of the extreme poverty of this individual, but rather show compassion and understanding. Note, he doesn't change the terms 
of the loan. The debt is still owed, right? But dignity is preserved in the process. So what would prompt such behavior? Well, a thoroughly biblical worldview that affirms that all human beings are equally valuable and important. A worldview rooted in the Genesis account which declares all human beings are made in the image of God and are therefore worthy of of dignity and honor and respect regardless of the situation they may find themselves in. So what might that look like today? Well, when it comes to uh, uh, debts and loans, a biblical approach would be both humanizing and God-honoring. It doesn't pretend that poverty doesn't exist, but it doesn't look to exploit it either. The goal would never be to exact maximum profit from those in need or to abuse the enormous power differentials involved. Rather, biblical lending would look for ways to, to offer dignity and respect even in difficult and potentially embarrassing situations. Sadly, of course, this is rarely the case today, right? Uh, Loan sharks prey on the poor. Payday loans take advantage of the genuine needs of people already struggling to get by, sometimes charging as much as 500 or even 600% interest on loans. You can read the stories of people who have got caught up in these these systems and they're heartbreaking. People are often driven to the point uh, of suicide as their debts continue to mount to astronomical levels. There are many, many factors, of course, that, that would lead people to get involved in loans like these. We're complex creatures, right? So Genesis teaches us that people, all people, are image bearers, right? But it also reminds us that all people are sinners. Nobody is perfect. And engaging with the poor is messy and complicated. But Christians can still have an important role in working with people trapped in these cycles of debt and poverty. In the case of predatory loans, for example, we could advocate for fair lending practices or petition for states to restrict uh, payday loan shops or at least to cap the interest rates on such loans. We can support and volunteer with ministries and organizations who work with people caught up in overwhelming debt and perhaps even provide resources if we led to help fund those people who need a little bit of extra help. Like I said, the answers, they're not simple. The problems are messy, they're complex. It can take so much time, so much work. That's why I stress working with organizations who have the the wisdom and the experience and the training and the bandwidth and the resources to face into these situations with wisdom and grace. But one change that we can all make is a commitment to treating the poor with as much dignity and respect as possible. Wherever and however we encounter them, committing to seeing those in poverty as truly as brothers and sisters created in the image of God, just like us.
and therefore worthy of our help, our attention, whatever mess and brokenness they may find themselves in. Which kind of then flows into a second way that we can uh, love our neighbor. And that's by helping to create opportunities for work. So we've all faced this dilemma before, right? Someone comes up to you on the street asking for money, or you see someone standing there with a cup or with a, a cardboard sign at the intersection or in a parking lot. And there's this mixture of feelings in that moment, right? It's like if I there's this guilt and shame and, and, and sadness and confusion and, and hesitation, uncertainty. Like, if I give someone money, what are they going to use it for? Is it really going to help? Is it going to do anything? Or are they even telling the truth? Is this just a scam? Am I going to be taken advantage of? And honestly, there is no easy answer. On the one hand, experts will say, look, giving someone money in that situation it's probably not going to do very much to help towards lasting long-term change in their life. But on the other hand, providing something in that moment may indeed provide some significant, genuine short-term relief for very real needs, for food or for clothing or shelter. And that has value. But as far as long-term lasting change, research shows that handouts, generally speaking, don't accomplish very much. Long-term change comes about through establishing relationships and giving people opportunities for meaningful work, including them in that process of change, rather than just handing it to someone. Now, there are three sections in our passage today that make this point. First, I want you to look at verse 6. Moses says, no one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Now, this is a, a picture of a millstone. It's really just two big pieces of rock on top of each other, and you would turn the rock, uh, the stone on top to grind the grain into flour for food. And the law says, you can't take away part or all of this millstone as a collateral for a loan. The person who is coming to you to borrow money is already in dire straits. They need help. They're in a situation where they have no other option but to borrow money from someone else. So the law says, don't then also take away the only means they have for grinding grain as well. To do so would be the equivalent of, of taking a life Here's the point. Moses says, look, working is good. Leave the poor their millstone so that they can still grind grain for their family. Maybe even for others also. Doing so doesn't just provide food for them, but it gives them an inherent sense of dignity. Like I, I'm doing something, I'm working my way out of this situation. Work is good. We are made to work, and to deprive someone of the ability to work is a grievous crime in God's eyes. Now, the second section I want to look at comes in verses 14 and 15. And Moses says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy 
whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Now, we don't see this very much around here, but when we lived in California, uh, there were always a couple dozen men hanging around in the local Home Depot parking lot looking for work. Uh, I'm not talking about like out in the orchards and, and, and the valleys. I'm saying like in suburbs of San Jose at the Home Depot, just standing there to like help you mulch the, your yard or fix your patio or just carry lumber uh, to your home. These are the contemporary version of the kind of workers that Moses describes in verse 14, hired workers who are poor and needy. And the principle is that such people should be paid a fair wage for their work and be paid on time. Because then, as now, this would be the very easiest class of worker to take advantage of. Right? There's no work, uh, no rights, no paperwork, no contracts, no oversight. It's completely at the mercy of whoever is hiring them. But the assumption underlying all of this is simple. It's let them work and then pay them for it. Our final section of our text comes at the same concept from a slightly different angle. So if you look at verses 19 through 22, Moses says, When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. These were probably the most at-risk groups in uh, ancient Israelite society. They lacked all the support structures and protection provided by stable family units. They were often taken advantage of as a result. Now, the law of Moses repeatedly affirms the dignity and the value of these three groups of people and calls on the people of God to care for them and to watch over them. But again, there's this emphasis placed on the value and the importance and the significance of work. <clears throat> right? Gleaning was not charity. It wasn't the ancient equivalent of a handout. According to Old Testament professor Chris Wright, the the Hebrew here actually conveys the idea of this being a right. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, they had a right to the leftovers. In a sense, these gleanings, these, just these little scraps, they were owed to them. Why? Because this was God's way of providing for the poor from the land that was ultimately his land. Right? Even if these people didn't technically possess specific plots for themselves, God plan, God's plan is for this fruit of the promised land to be available for all. So if they worked for the food, they could have it. 
Now, it might not be very much, but it will be something, and, and certainly enough to protect them from those who might prey on them in their time of need and desperation. A lack of resources is clearly a major component of poverty, but if that was the only problem, then it could be solved by simply providing more resources to fill the gap, right? Like balancing an equation. But what we've seen instead from decades of real-world experience is that handouts may provide short-term relief, but they never bring about lasting, long-term change. And again, although the solutions are complex, one consistent factor that can give a tiny glimmer of hope is helping people to find work coming alongside struggling communities, listening to them, learning from them, and then supporting them in their efforts to establish systems for growth. So you've probably heard about about microloans before, right? Well, in recent years, this actually shifted focus a little bit into a broader ministry of microfinance, providing small-scale, locally-run banking and financial services to poor communities who lack them. So not just investing in entrepreneurial efforts in these communities, but giving them ways and means to start saving money or pooling their resources into a community savings fund to offer their own loans to the entrepreneurs in their communities. Providing uh, insurance to people who have never had insurance before. You can research all these different plans and programs for yourself online. And look, it's not perfect. Again, it doesn't solve the problem. But it is one small way to go about building structures that create opportunities for people to begin to work and to find meaning and dignity in that effort. And so we can all be praying about ways that we can help to create more opportunities for those in poverty to find the work that they need. That brings me to a third way that we can love our neighbor and work to improve the situation for those living in poverty. And that's by living in Christian community. Now, we talk a lot about community here, right? Fellowship is is not just part of our name as a church, but it's embedded in in our identity. It's who we are, right? Not just because we think it's a clever, close, uh, gross strategy, but because we believe this to be a biblically faithful way to live out our calling as followers of Jesus. According to the Bible, we're a family, And that same assumption underlies all the commands in this chapter. And indeed, in the entire book of Deuteronomy. It's like Moses is encouraging the people to see that they are all in this together. There are no expendable parts. The people of God are a community brought together by God, sustained by God, and called to image God to the world around them. And so within that context, these laws and rules are designed to govern behavior within this community, to provide form and shape to their patterns of work and play and rest and worship. 
to help them see beyond themselves to the needs of those around them. So the law confronted people with the fact that their thoughts, their beliefs, their actions were not just their own, but they had a real impact on the other people around them, on the nation, even on the physical land itself. There's this deep sense of interconnectedness that's just assumed here in Deuteronomy. But look with me at the text here in verses 8 and 9. Moses says, Take care, in a case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Now on the one hand, it's like, what on earth is this command about leprosy doing here in the middle of a series of laws about dealing with poverty and loans and everything else? Well, let me explain. The incident that Moses recounts here is recorded for us in detail in Numbers chapter 12. And the problem was not so much that Miriam got leprosy or some kind of leprous skin disease. The problem was that Miriam and Aaron both spoke out against Moses. And they called into question his God-appointed role as leader of the people. They didn't like the fact that their little baby brother was suddenly in charge and speaking face-to-face with God. And they wanted in on that. And so, as punishment, God sends some kind of skin disease on Miriam, and she is forced to live outside the camp for seven days. And the point that God makes very clear is that Moses is his chosen servant and should be treated as such. There's this spiritual leadership structure that God has put in place which should be followed, and, and, and failing to do that temporarily pushes Miriam outside the community of faith. So coming back to our text here in Deuteronomy, Moses is not concerned to give them a list of best practices for running a successful nation or guiding principles for handling poverty. Right? He's reminding them that these financial laws and policies are all set within a broader spiritual framework governed by God and under the immediate spiritual leadership and guidance of the Levitical priests. Failing to obey them will put people outside the community of faith. It's a reminder that even laws about millstones and cloaks and loans and gleaning and everything else come under the purview of God. Or look with me at verse 16. Moses says here, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Moses establishes a legal principle here that each person is personally responsible for his or her own sin. So if I steal a sheep or a goat, The punishment for that crime shouldn't extend to my children, and vice versa, right? It's a guard against blood feuds or clan violence that might otherwise linger for generations, on and on. It's a plea for justice to be served in a fair and even-handed manner. 
without thought of prejudging people based on their family ties or their ethnic background. It's an encouragement to take each person as they stand on the basis of their own works. In this way, it's similar in many ways to the New Testament command to take the log out of your own eye before removing the speck in your neighbor's. It's a principle of owning your own sin, which is fundamental to living in a community with other sinners. So when it comes to working with the poor, we talked about treating people with dignity and giving opportunities to do meaningful work. And those are all great, but there's nothing specifically Christian about them. I mean, atheists, Muslims, Hindus, whatever. They could all affirm those principles. But our text and Moses' instructions won't allow such a generic approach. They assume an underlying commitment to a specifically God-centered community. It's everywhere in this text. So in verse 7, right, purging evil, that's a moral imperative driven by a commitment to the Judeo-Christian understanding of creation. Or in verse 8, we have a clear command to live under the authority of God's law with a threat of punishment from God looming behind it. Or in verse 10, the process for taking collateral, it wasn't merely a business decision. It was a reflection of righteousness, right standing before the Lord God himself. Or verse 14, employers, they're told that failure to pay fairly or promptly is not just a bad business decision, it's sin, right? A moral category determined by God. In verses 17 and 18, we have a reminder that the people, they have no special standing before God because they themselves were once slaves also until God rescued them. Right? This image that later becomes such a powerful metaphor for salvation. And then in verses 19 and 22, the gleaning law is set within that same context of the Exodus narrative where providing for the poor is specifically tied to receiving God's blessing. So as you can see, God's commands for engaging with the poor, they require a thoroughly biblical worldview. They demand it, which means that true care and support for the poor has to involve the slow and patient work of calling them into this community of faith. It's the only place where real, true, lasting change is going to happen helping them to root their sense of a value and worth in their identity as image bearers of God, helping them to see their work not just as a means to accumulate more stuff or build a bank balance or pay off a loan, but as a way to steward gifts that God has given them and ultimately helping them to see their place in the kingdom of God as precious and beloved sons and daughters of the King, called, redeemed, and set free through the blood of Christ. I want to conclude here with a, a word from John Calvin. 
Because he offers us, I think, here both a convicting word on the one hand and also an encouraging word to all of us on this topic. He wrote extensively about the need to care for the poor in the city of Geneva where he worked. And I want to read to you part, just one little part of what he wrote. He said, the Lord commands all men without exception to do good. Yet the great part of them are most unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. But here scripture helps in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider the men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men to which we owe all honor and love. In other words, he says, look, if we only judge people by their merit, what we think they deserve, then many, perhaps even most, will come up short. Now he's very honest. They're going to come up short. He expands on this more in the Institutes. He gives all kinds of examples. Poor life choices, addictions, mental illness, poor work ethic. The list could go on and on and on and on and on. But... Calvin says, we don't do good to others simply on the basis of their merit. Scripture teaches us to rather focus on the image of God that is present in all men and women. That, he says, should be our motivation. Because if we focus simply on merit, then we convict ourselves. For none of us deserve God's blessing in our lives. None of us have truly earned it. In fact, what we think that we have, we don't truly possess. We simply steward and care for it until God passes it on from us to someone else. This is incredibly convicting to me as I think about my own failures to care for the poor. It's a challenge to to do better in the future. But it's also encouraging to be reminded that God, God doesn't judge me on the basis of my merit. He sees me as poor, weak, needy, even in this area of caring for the poor, right? He sees me as broken and stumbling, desperate for help. And God doesn't belittle or ignore me or pass me by or condemn me or judge me, but rather he works gently, graciously, patiently. He works in and through me, rebuilding what is broken and restoring what was lost, taking all these broken pieces of my life and slowly molding and shaping them together to make me whole and new once again. My prayer is that we would Continue to be a community that invites other broken, needy people to join us in this journey of restoration that we're all walking in, extending the love of Christ to all of our neighbors and all for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning just humbled at this reminder that we are all broken, sinful in so many ways. Lord, we have nothing that you have not given to us. 
And Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts of compassion and tenderness and gentleness. Open our eyes to the needs of those around us. Lord, give us patience and perseverance as we seek to help those battling poverty. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.